also look for influences in like viral videos, like about anything. I try and understand what are the things that people share or want to spend time watching and try and think about what is that. And sometimes I haven't actually tested this, so I need to, but like maybe I'll do like a grainier version of the video. Maybe I'll intentionally lower the quality of the video and run that. I haven't tested that. I'm very excited to test that, but that's the kind of thing that runs through my head is like, how do I make this look like something that people want to engage with while still being an ad and still, or maybe not be still being an ad, but still making people pay attention and want to buy. That's the end of the end goal. It's not, how do I just trick people or how do I just make ugly shit? I don't want to do that. I, my goal is how do I get people to buy and how do I get people to pay attention? How do I get to do something with that action, that attention, and how do I get them to take action? If that trick works, then I want to learn how to do it better. I want to play with it. Welcome to Ad Creative, a new show from Pencil about the unexpected ideas that have changed the game for DTC founders and operators with a focus on actionable takeaways. I'm Chase Moseni from the Pencil team. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Barry Hot, who's currently advising DTC brands on growth. We start by learning about his early days running Facebook ads when he was working in HR, to his feelings about the trends popping up across performance and creative, and how he believes the operators of the future will need to prepare themselves. Barry and I could have chopped it up for four hours and kept going. I hope you enjoy learning during this one. He literally drops it like it's hot. Yes, I said it. Enjoy. I'm really glad to be joined today on Ad Creative with Barry Hot. First, first order of business, he's a new dad, so congrats on that. Thank you, Chase. And I think uh, I want to give a little rundown on some things uh, things with Barry that have come up recently. So he's been running ads since 08, so he's from the OG days. He spent over $600 million on Facebook, and that's not counting TikTok and all the rest of them that have come up over time. And three out of three of the companies that he worked for in 2021 got acquired, which I don't know who else can actually say that. So that's a pretty, I would get that tattooed on my chest. My wife would yeah. like it, but yeah, that, that would yeah. be one to be like, yeah, listen, I'm to go. So yeah, <laughs> I'm really excited to have a chat with you today. Oh, thanks for the solid intro. It sounds much better coming from someone else than from myself. I'm everyone's hype man. Essentially, I might change my Twitter that's bio. Great. Everyone, DDC Twitter is a hype man. Just let me know what you want. I'll record yeah. a hype video for you. Uh, that's a great tactic. I forget where I read this. I need to find the quote on this, but it's one of those things. If you have an employee and you're about to introduce them to your client, if you can hype them up and say their accomplishments rather than them make them say it about themselves, it instills, it, it captures the trust that you've already earned and it like puts it onto that person. It moves it, it transposes onto that person. It's a really cool tactic yeah, uh, it's, it's you, not you to break down. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's social proof. It's social proof. Yeah, literally, it is. It really is. Literally, yeah. Proof. Oh, ab absolutely. It's funny. People in meetings will be like, "Oh yeah, Chase has run some ads." I'm like, "Yeah, I run some ads." And someone will say like a number, and people are like, "Oh shit, yeah. you run that much?" <laughs> and like, you try to be modest about it, but like, yeah, fucker, I'm not. No, I don't try to be modest at all. Yeah. Other things, sure, yeah. but like for whatever reason, I'm like, no, this well, is it. There's also the like the blood, sweat, and tears that went into getting to that number. And it's like, all right, this is I. This is a hill I'm going to be very proud to stand on because it, it took yeah, a long yeah. time to scale it, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I'm, yeah, I'm proud of my body of work to this point. Not too proud. I'm not like, yeah. I mean, maybe I sound like egotistical. Who knows? No, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what the comments are on yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to see. Look at this egotistical yeah. schmuck, yeah. So you've been in the game for almost 15 years now. I'm curious how you broke yeah. into working in advertising to begin oh, with. Man. It's such an interesting story. I love this. So 
I actually like early days when I was a teenager, I had awful homestead website back in when you could yeah. like build like, and I'm pretty sure all that was on it was like a web counter and probably some like some crappy animations at things that like were just like off the shelf there. It was nothing. It was a nothing website. But I remember for some reason I was like obsessed with getting more traffic and exchanging, like doing ad exchanges where you'd have ads on your site. So basically now I have a website with nothing on it but ads. And those ads would go to other websites and then you'd trade or whatever ratio ads on their site that go to their, my site and my ads on my site go to like other sites and then ad exchange. And like, that's weird. That's a weird thing. For, I think I was probably 14 when I was doing that to be doing. And uh, so, yeah, I was like very interested in doing that stuff on my own. And I did like an internship in high school with a, a marketing agency and worked on, that was the, maybe the biggest time I've spent working on Google ads was back then. Really? When I was like, yeah, when I was like 17, before I got really, before Facebook was even, when that was when Facebook was becoming a thing. Yeah. And then I, I ran my first Facebook ads, recruiting students, college students and teachers to come work at summer camps, running just right column ads. And literally I was working in like HR recruiting for this summer camp company. And that's where I ran my first ads ever. And since then, it's just every job I've had since then has involved advertising. Yeah. And should I go deeper? Should I tell yeah, you more? About talk to the people. Sure. Yeah. So I worked at a few different companies. I did worked at $39glasses.com very proudly. I was there. I worked at Likeable. And I think at Likeable Media, which is an incredible place, some of the most amazing talent I've ever met. And a lot of the alumni from there have gone and done absolutely insanely incredible things. I started really doing media buying at an agency level there for a lot of different clients. I was working with like Seamless and visit Salt Lake and extra space self-storage. Big shout outs to those old clients of mine. And then I went to Unified. I worked there for a while and that's where I got to really work on some big stuff. I was working on the AT&T's, Toyota's, Microsoft Crafts of the world and so many other brands. Like those are the ones I highlight because those are the biggest, but so many other smaller things than that. There are a lot more, there are a lot more interesting, more fun brands that I can highlight. But those are the big, those are the big heavy hitter ones. And those were like, I don't know if I've shared this before publicly. Like when I say I was working on AT&T people, there's a lot of people can be like, yeah, I worked on AT&T. Yeah. No, I, I either managed or oversaw every single social ad dollar that got spent by, I think every division of AT&T at the time. So I was like AT&T direct TV now, cricket wireless, AT&T small business, like all of it. I'm not saying I ran every dollar of all of those things. Some of my team members did, but like a lot of that I was running myself or overseeing. So I knew every ad that was in market and nobody at AT&T, nobody at the agency that was like running that knew everything because it was all these siloed teams. I had it all. So that's a, I don't know if that's a brag. I don't think it is. It's just like a weird, yeah, I really did it. And that was mostly branding stuff, but we also had some surprising amount of direct response stuff that we did as well. So I'm curious how would like a direct response yeah. would work, especially back then for AT&T, not to yeah. dive deeper on that, but it's pretty yeah. interesting because of the nature of their business. They want you to come. And yes. Yeah. It is really interesting. And it's also interesting how they attribute it. And this is, yes, mm, this is why I'm such an, this is why I'm such a nerd about attribution. So like they, we would run ads to sell specific products. So like that, if you think about, it, we weren't necessarily 
for that, the DR stuff, we weren't necessarily directly selling lines specifically or features. Often we were selling maybe devices or accessories in, in that kind of direct response way, but also for selling their bigger stuff, the new accounts or whatever, they were actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. It doesn't matter. It was a long time ago. They were actually optimizing or sorry, attributing based on last touch via view. So if you know that the, and you're using like a double click, you're using a third party data provider yeah. that can track that from impressions, then you're not incentivized to make ads that make people actually take action. You're incentivized to serve up the cheapest impressions possible wherever you can. Yeah. So I'm not saying we did that. In fact, the story I love to tell is I heard them say that and immediately was like, oh, so you want us to run right column ads only? And they were like, and there was someone at the agency who was like, basically, yes, not exclusively, yeah. but in some capacity, yes, in order to like juice the view through attribution numbers, because we could just basically serve a cheap impression to every person in the United States in with barely spending any money because hand column impressions are so cheap. So inevitably those people are going to make a purchase because of the TV ads and the billboards or sponsoring golf tournaments. So that it was an interesting learning experience for me. And I wonder if they still do that to this day. I'm sure they've changed now, but I don't know if we want to get into the whole attribution topic that was just popular. Yeah, on, I, I would, um, I'm always, I always love talking about this. Yeah. I got into it when I was working at house, we, uh, we ran an MTA model and it was such a new thing for me to deal with that. So mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely want to, want to talk about it. I still do run columns to be honest with you. I still see them, the AT&T ones. And by the way, what's funny is C's have had to get smarter, obviously, but I remember those days when impressions were like, okay, we can serve and we're going to get this halo effect of the brand. Yeah. Like I, I worked on like Stripe and Six Gum mm -hmm. back when they were making like a lot of gum commercials. Like we sure. would get a lot of attribution from the commercials, yeah. but we knew that people weren't buying because of our ads they were buying because they yeah. saw the kick-ass commercials that they used to do for gum and yeah. it is what it is but yeah i completely understand that so i'm curious diving diving a little bit deeper on this what are the top misconceptions when you tell someone so what does your mom think you do that's a great question i don't know i don't know what my i think my mom generally understands that i make ads that go on facebook and instagram because she also knows like i am in some ads yeah so I think she maybe thinks I do a lot of that. I think she understands that I do the technical side of ads as well as strategic. I think she understands that. She's on Facebook. Yeah. So I think she understands what a Facebook ad is. And I think she understands like that I have to do something in order for them to see, for her to see them and do something about it. I think she understands that pretty good actually, even though she's I old. Has she ever seen you in an ad? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure she's either, I forget if she sent me one of my own ads or if someone else sent it to her and sent it to me. But I thought you sure, had, I think. Yeah. It's weird. To, I was at a party recently and someone came up to me and said, Hey, I know you from something. What is it? And I was like, we like tried to rule it out. And I was like, I'm in some ads for these things. And he's yes, those chicken chip ads. And I was like, oh boy, that's weird. That's weird. I'm a celebrity now. I sign autographs. I sign autographs everywhere I go. Get you on autograph.io and get some hot NFT autographs. Just <laughs> Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. That's what like Tom Brady and all those guys are, uh, oh, great. Guys are doing. Yeah. 
I'll start. I'm starting my cameo soon. You can pay me $6 and I will make you a birthday video. Because literally what I posted on Twitter today that people are sleeping on using cameo as an asset collection source for other. Oh, ones. that's. It's like they have, they do that. That's like a service they offer. Oh, it totally is. It totally yeah. built out. I just don't see enough brands actually using it. Yeah. The people on there are actually actors. So they yeah. do a good job. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I should see about, I should look into that for one of my clients, see how much it would cost to pick someone, pick like Kevin from the office, who's the biggest cameo creator. Oh, he's see, so, he's see so good. Yeah, yeah. He's so good. I read an article about how much money he's making up cameo. It's a clean amount of money. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's awesome. It's I think that's great. I'm Brian Baumgartner, right? I yeah. think who I was recently working. I gosh, I hope the guy named Brian Baumgartner I work with is also watching this because yeah. I work with someone <laughs> with that name, and I'm like, anyway, yeah, it's I think it's an interesting creative angle, especially because that could be a fun way to get that get UGC that has a recognizable face in it. Yeah. Um, whereas most UGC doesn't have a recognizable face in it, and I think. When I have this whole philosophy of around like showing faces in and in, in ads, if you show a face, then people don't recognize that face. They're probably not going to care. Like they're going to care less. They're less likely to keep paying yeah. attention. Either I like to obscure a face or make it less clear that it is someone you recognize. Or if it is someone you recognize, then definitely lean into that. If you can use a real celebrity, use a real celebrity. So then how do you feel about like services like Billow when they create stuff like that? Because I, I'm in this, I, I wrote this, I wrote this thing the other day. I, I feel really strongly about it, which is yeah. this really interesting phase of, of UGC, which yeah. is it's starting to get homogenized to a point where it's not yeah. interesting anymore. And so it's, it's going to go through, it's going through homogenization and then we're going to mm -hmm. hit fatigue with audiences yeah. and then there's going to be innovation. And so yeah. I know there are people who are ahead of on the innovation, like you're talking about, Hey, we're going to put your faces. We're going to do something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's a small but, trick. That's not a big, no, that's it, not a scalable. It is, it is a trick though, right? That's something mm -hmm. a little bit different from what, for mm -hmm. instance, like the, I'm saying cottage industry, Bill obviously provides a great service for brands, but there's a certain way that every single person on there shoots their content. Yep. How do you feel about some of those services that are out there versus when you work with someone, it's much more thoughtful rather yeah, than. Yeah, it's a great question. First I'll address, I actually haven't used Billow. I okay. like advise for B-roll, B-E-roll.io. Mm -hmm. Strongly recommend it. I love it because, and then now, now I'm just plugging B-roll, but to me, I haven't used Bill and I actually need to be able to compare it. But for me, B-roll lets me put in a storyboard and my own shot list basically. And I get creators that apply for it. And I can also bring in creators that I find wherever I find them and invite them to that thing so that they can just be handed the storyboard and I can run it all through there. And then I get individual clips that are tagged with the name of each thing. So. There's a lot I can do with that. Now, the bigger thing that is the problem, and I was just talking to someone about this like yesterday, the big thing about UGC or UG style, I think some of the shine is wearing off, but as more brands are figuring it out, but I think also there's still this feeling of, oh, let's just wave my UGC wand and it'll make everything better. People still believe, oh yeah, UGC just works. But no, you still have to make a good ad. You still need to do that. And there's the problem with a lot of these creators, and I wish they would watch, they'd watch this and I can share this with them. Like, the problem with a lot of these creators is that they don't get feedback on the ads, on the stuff they make. Mm -hmm. So they don't know if they've made a banger of an ad or a dud. And most of these brands aren't wasting time or energy to give that feedback to them. These creators aren't getting access to the ad accounts. They're not getting reporting. They're not getting anything. So they don't know if 
they're making something good, but they can just say, well, I made ads for this brand and this brand. So obviously it must be good. They put that on their website. They put that in their whatever. And then more brands hire them for that because they're like, this brand used them and this brand's smart. So they must be good. It's garbage in and garbage out. If you don't give the creator a good prompt, then they're not going to get you what you need. I don't like scripted stuff because scripted stuff feels inauthentic, but I do like to give prompts because I know I need to get XYZ back. I need this question answered in order for me to be able to make an ad with this person's content. I need them to get to this conclusion. I need them to show this. And if you don't give them that, if you don't have the final edit in mind, then you're going to have a problem. Or you need creators that have made stuff that you either know performs or they understand how to look at performance. And that's the big problem I see is all these like UGC creators on TikTok and they're all over Twitter now as well. Some of them know what they're doing and some of them just look like they know what they're doing. And the last thing I'll say on this topic, or maybe not the last thing, but the last thing I want to say about this specific topic is that so many of these UGC creators and also so many brands, they look at what I consider to be like an influencer style, like where it's not creating an ad, it's not creating a piece of content that is worth watching. It's creating this like thing that you just put out there if you're somewhat famous or have somewhat of a following to show that you like a product to your existing audience. That is what the traditional garbage UGC route looks like where influencers can do that because they have an audience. And then brands can promote that thinking that it'll work well, but it usually doesn't work well to other people because they don't know them. And then all these other creators come in and think, oh, that's what these people do. That's they're successful. Ergo, I'm going to shoot and talk and, you know, create an edit in this way. But it's really not performance driven. It's performative. And that's the big problem I think that we still have with UGC at scale. And there are different ways and different sources you can get that. And it's going to be good or bad. If you can't give enough direction, you're going to have a problem. If you have creators that expect you to want a super polished, just showing the product. Oh, look at this product. Talk about this feature and this feature. By the way, this is my old coworkers hand sanitizer brand that, that I work in an industrious and they gave it to me for free. And now I've bought six of these. They're yeah, they're really, really, oops, I just showed it. It doesn't work, but really good hand sanitizer. Oh my God. It's really good. We're going to put that, we're going to get a link and put it in the show notes. Mashinko. Yeah, he's not paying me. I'm not affiliated with him at all. This is not any influencer <laughs> stuff. This is just a um, helping your friend. <laughs> right. Yeah. But actually, it's so funny. A second ago, I did, I just was trying to prove a point about like how do they just talk about the, the product. And then I actually genuinely, authentically spoke as myself. Yeah. Talking about how much I like the product. And there's a big difference between those two things. One of those doesn't work. Talking about, look how cool this package yeah. is. doesn't matter. But me saying it smells great. I love it. How it smells. That yeah. is authentic and more believable. I think there's something, there's some, there's a big portion of this, which I think everyone forgets about. So I'm going to talk about the, what people forget about and then like how, yeah. what the solution actually is to this, to helping mm -hmm. creators in my mind, people forget. I, I have this argument with everyone is that every data point that we read is a person. And they're having a unique human experience, just like yes. you. And we get in these cohort analysis and like this data is moving like this and it's moving left and right. And you're like, dude, these are people 
if it's moving left mm -hmm. or right, there is a reason and we need to pinpoint the reason. So for instance, you just we, you just showed me something you had a very human experience, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. resonates with people. You saying, hey, this works and that works and this works and that works. For instance, when, with Pencil, there's a lot of features. You know what I always say to people? Making ads is really hard. I know how hard it is. Let's take that off your plate. And it always resonates with people because they're like, oh, fuck, it is hard. It's really hard. I have and a tweet lined up about that. Like, in it's scheduled in like two days from now tag us <laughs> it's, it's something along those lines i think it's like yeah. media buying is exhausting i think that's like a yeah. four-word tweet i have scheduled yeah it's totally brutal so yeah i i think that's one thing i always want people to uncover is when you're doing all of this mm -hmm. stuff and you're trying to hack there is no hack human beings have a few things that matter to them for instance you talked about the smell is the most like it, it triggers the memory more than anything else for people leverage it if you have it because you can't they can't visually see that something yeah. smells you need to talk about what the feeling is like for you this smells amazing oh my god i love it okay it's what poopery did one of my old bosses at the agency <laughs> was the guy who did all this the original poopery creative and he's yeah we just wow. talked about like how bad it is to smell your shit and how great it is to not have to smell your shit and you're like everyone yes. resonated with that my other question for you like Helping the creators, because I think what you said about mm -hmm. it being not performance driven and more performative, you have mm -hmm. most brands are just on their merry way after they get their assets and they're going to go and they're going to yes. run their stuff and then they're going to move to the next creator and there's no feedback yeah. loop for creators. Correct. And so yes. I'm sure you give a lot of reporting to your creators because you're, you are, no. data you don't. <laughs> no, sadly. No, like it's a, there's, I'm not saying, yeah, I haven't improved this problem either. Yeah. Sometimes, yes, like there may be part people I partner more closely with and I'll be like, hey, this is what worked. This is what didn't like, let's do more. I do it myself. The reason why I make good ads myself and put myself in ads is because I have a front row seat mm. to every ad that bombs and every ad that succeeds. And I am comfortable talking on camera enough to do it and be weird. And so that I, I have that advantage and I have seen that for hundreds of ad accounts and thousands of ads or tens of thousands of ads, who knows, for millions of dollars worth. I wish there was some way I could share that with other people. Now I'm thinking about how to like make a, make, educate that and share that more. But it's hard because people think I'm insane. When people see, there are people who, when they see the flock chicken chips ad that I did, or some other ads that I've done, they're like, this guy is disgusting. This guy is ugly. And this guy does not know how to make a good ad because my ads look ugly. Yeah. Uh, they, they... Listening, Barry's hat says make ugly ads. And so that's going to be a nice <laughs> dovetail into something else later on. But yes, absolutely. Make ugly ads. I'm all, I'm here for that, by the way. Yeah. I'm not saying everyone needs to make ugly ads and hundred percent of your ads should be ugly. Be comfortable trying something that isn't perfectly polished is all I, I nudge people to do because it's, out of a lot of people's comfort zones. They wouldn't ever think, they, they think it tarnishes their brand and it really doesn't hurt to loosen up a little bit. And yeah, I, I again, there are definitely people out there who would never ever hire me to make an ad for them because of how my ads look. And meanwhile, I intentionally make those things look that way because I have shot a prettier camera angle. I have shot using a better camera. I have shot using better lighting and when I shoot those, I have intentionally shot them at a kind of awkward low angle. I've shot them with like definitely imperfect lighting 
And I used to be a photographer. Like I, I had, a, I was a photographer. I used to shoot weddings. Like I knew how to handle a camera and lighting pretty good. And so I would intentionally do the opposite of that and just go be willy nilly with it and ask myself, how would I perfect this shot? How would I make this perfect? If I were an influencer trying to make this beautiful and then I don't do that. And then I also look for influences in like viral videos, like about anything. I try and understand what are the things that people share or want to spend time watching and try and think about what is that. And sometimes I haven't actually tested this, so I need to, but like, maybe I'll do like a grainier version of the video. Maybe I'll intentionally lower the quality of the video and run that. I haven't tested that. I'm very excited to test that, but that's the kind of thing that runs through my head is like, how do I make this look like something that people want to engage with while still being an ad and still or maybe not would be still being there, but still making people pay attention and want to buy. That's the end of the end goal. It's not, how do I just trick people or how do I just make ugly shit? I don't want to do that. I, my goal is how do I get people to buy and how do I get people to pay attention? How do I get to do something with that action, that attention and how do I get them to take action? So if that trick works, then I want to learn how to do it better. I want to play with it. So that's funny. So this kind of two-parter then. So First one, I just read an article from, from Vox where they said trends are dead and it's because of kind of the rise of like reels and, and TikToks because stuff that's trending and viral happens at a moment's notice. Like it's not yeah. like our pod that came out today, essentially TikTok has democratized virality where it wasn't yeah. like that before. So what the question is specifically here is when you're looking at those trends, mm -hmm. you're always right-sizing that against what the brand can and can't do. The mm -hmm essentially the sandbox that you're playing within, but maybe there's like an inner sandbox and an outer sandbox. So like the brand has lived in this inner sandbox and you're saying, Hey, look, we got 10, 15 feet on like left, like North, South, East and West that we can go play with. And that's where you're, that's where you're going. So you're using those trends to essentially find new ways to communicate. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Cause I think it is a really important thing for people to be like looser with their yeah. brand and how they essentially do this. Because I'm really, I get really frustrated when a brand mm -hmm goes and focuses on a trend that doesn't align with who they are. They'll just do it because yeah. it's hot versus right, hey, this right, makes right. sense for us. We're going to do our version of it and test the boundaries of what we have been yeah. at this point. Exactly. What do you think about that? So I actually, I, I try not to do anything that is too trendy. Hmm. I definitely don't want to be chasing whatever is hot right now. That's, I avoid that. I want something that I want to make the ad that can last six months to six years. That's my goal. And that's harder now, right? As people's tastes are changing quicker, I think, and attention spans are shorter. But I, when I look at these trends, I look at the trends of trends. Like when I think about what are the visual things, the visual cues that people are know are learning from these trends that tell them this isn't an ad. <laughs> and how do I back into that? So if I've started to notice, and I don't know if this is true, but maybe there's a trend of like people just talking to in TikTok videos that are extreme close-ups. Actually, it's very much the opposite of that. Usually it's like way back far from the camera where people are doing a lot of that TikTok stuff because they're doing dances. So yeah. like, maybe that's a thing. Have your phone set up far on the other side of the room and talk, shout at the camera <laughs> you know, across the room. Like that is something I would want to play with. Perhaps I have played with about creating ads based on the, those trends. What is the commonality across all of these things? And yeah, there's the dance videos, like, yeah, whatever's trending songs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what are the other ways that people are just 
showing up in ads. And maybe this is too micro because it's still, you still have to make that content be worthwhile and be an ad. So I'm just talking about tricks on how to like basically get the attention in the first place. That's what I'm just talking about here a little bit. So there's been a hot kind of topic where people will say that they're a performance created strategist. <laughs> and I think performance creative, obviously, there's a, it's very important to be thinking about this and making sure your creative is performing. But I think what you're talking mm -hmm. about right here is like, how do I, because you're vertically integrated into these accounts, plus being able to either direct the creative and or yeah. you create it yourself. Yeah. But a lot of people will say, though, I'm a performance creative. I think about performance and creative, and it's, but you're only making the creative. So you're not a performance yeah. creative because performance creative is both. It's you're synthesizing yeah. things and maybe that's the media buyer of the future. And so yeah. I'm curious, right. like, how do, how does someone, because you've given a lot of tips of how to learn. I think and it's interesting because a lot of media buyers don't want to be around, like are not people, I guess, or is that how you say that? Like they're focused on data, just focus on it. They don't want to take meetings with people. And a lot of the creators are not like super data driven. And so there's right. like a middle ground where you need to be able to do both. And you're going to, yeah. you're going to index one way or the other on, on one yeah. side where you're more mm -hmm. comfortable but you need to be you need to at least be able to be to be like dangerous on one side on the other side if you're indexed on one side and so like how do and people partner you need oh. to partner with someone who fills that other part there you go if, if you can't so that's, that's the big one is build partnerships yeah. with people who yeah. can fill the gap so that you can do the work and so you're almost a, yeah. a performance creative team then yeah if you're a media buyer listening to this and you don't really creative doesn't click that much for you, or you don't really enjoy it. Find a creator or an editor or someone who does get it and work advice, same vice versa. I think that the like brand performance creative is important. It is, in my opinion, the most important thing that we're going to need. We've needed the last two, three, four years, and it will be the most important thing going into the next few years, if not in perpetuity in advertising. Meaning that someone who can make and understand the creation and creative and editing side of things, but also the data side of things. Performance creative is the most, has been the most important thing for the last few years and will be the most important thing for the next few years, if not in perpetuity, where you can't just have ads anymore and just be like, oh, the more impressions we get, the more conversions we get. It's not that simple. You need to be making ads that actually get people to pay attention and get people to take action. So being able to just understand those simple things is table stakes. And the big problem with what you said a second ago, like performance creative is that anyone can say that they are making performance creative or their performance creative strategist, or they make creative based in performance. It's like such vague terms. And there are genuinely people who are remarkable at this. And it's really hard. And I think this is similar with anything in marketing or anything in probably any realm. It just because you say that you do, it doesn't mean you do it well. And it's really hard to prove you, you do any of these things because even, yeah, I'll, I'll be eager to see when like performance creative strategists or whatever start touting their like, 5X ROAS or whatever they do, or like 100 300% increase in performance. But like those case studies that are also, I'll probably call out for being wise, but it's really hard. It's really hard to know. And it's really hard for those creators to get feedback. I'll be interested to see who does conquer that. I know there's a couple 
like performance creative agencies, some big expensive ones that do a very good job of working on feedback loops all throughout their business from the like uh, creative strategist, media buyer working together to them relaying feedback to the editors and whoever working with the in initial actual creators that are in the videos. So all of those people are learning what worked and what didn't so that they can all keep making better and better things. And that is like wild com compared to most smaller agencies or most individual creators, individual editors, in internal buying teams. They don't have those resources. They don't build those resources and they don't have the time to do that well. And a lot of people don't even want to spend time in a meeting doing that. They don't want to review the data. They don't. So yeah, it's a weird world we're in and there's people that are going to do it better than others. Yeah, like anything, the cream rises to the top. You get these frequencies yeah. where you feel like, okay, these are the hitters and they start charging a yeah. premium because they are the hitters so they can start only working with certain brands. And every brand needs to essentially ascend to be able to get to a place where they can work with those. I, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's 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 going to be a bit pervasive. Kind of right. the performance creative strategist will be what the media buyer has been for the last couple of years where mm -hmm. everyone is touting their 6X ROAS. And it's, dude, let's go... Show me cohort analysis of these people. Show me, let's actually have a conversation about what the data actually looks like on the other side of, yeah. of all of this. So yeah, I think it's a really good call out. Thanks. Okay, so I have another one. It's, I think it's really, this, is, this one I love. What's the most overhyped thing going around right now? The most overhyped thing? Wow. And in, in advertising and marketing and in, in- Yeah, in, in advertising, marketing, growth, performance. What thing is everyone saying is, is the thing? that is just being over overplayed. I'm going to have to say TikTok ads specifically. And now I really hope that someone listens to this and uh, I bet 50% would agree and 50% would disagree. I have this one side of group of people like that they say can't get TikTok to work. Nobody I know can get TikTok to work. They're saying that. Like none of these businesses I know can get that to work. And then there's also the other side of there are definitely people I know who are saying this is working. This is profitable. We are making stuff. I think it's the classic, like TikTok isn't for everyone. It's not for every brand. And so like in that way, I think it is overblown because I think there are people saying TikTok works. You should be on it. It should work for you. And I'm just not sure that's the case for every brand right now, especially if you don't have the creative for it. So then do you think that back when Facebook and Instagram ads started out, it wasn't for everyone either? Kind of same thing. And it's like the life cycle of a channel, like the people yeah. who it's 100% evolves over time. Yeah, absolutely. I think early Instagram days, wow. So it's very similar. Early Instagram days, first of all, just images. When or for your early Instagram ad days, which is after Facebook acquired it, and then they quickly built Instagram into their ad platform. So the whole thought was originally like, oh, you have to make more polished things for Instagram than you would Facebook. And you have to make more whatever. And a big part of what everything changed, really, the type of content that was shared on Instagram changed from being polished friend, friends Instagram photos of moments and memories to more polished influencer and memes and other things and to, or to less polished things. And I don't know even what it is now. It's just every, anything that is a photo or video you want to 
communicate that with a community exists there. So it's evolved. And with it, the ads have evolved as well. The expectation of what content you're going to see on there, the expectation of whose content you're on Instagram to see is as evolved and the placements have evolved. Instagram stories has evolved, right? All of these variables are so different and yet often as a general like advertising industry, they're often looked at as one thing, Facebook ads and, or it's so funny. It's like either it's looked at too broadly, oh, social ads or, oh, just Facebook ads. But meanwhile, that's encompassing like every placement within it, or sometimes people are too prescriptive and they're like, oh, I just want to run this one thing on just Instagram stories. And I'm like, that's too restrictive. Like we need to find a way to make stuff that kind of can work across all of these things, which is hard. It's hard to want to make stuff that makes sense for each of them and make stuff that makes sense for all of them. Yeah. But when you can find a lot of scale, if you can make something that works on multiple placements yeah. and I'll add most people don't understand most advertisers don't understand or care or look at the placement breakdowns to understand where their spend is going oh, and they they don't yeah. understand that some ads deliver more to facebook feed and some ads deliver more to instagram feed yeah. or instagram story and that's what drives me insane is that i think people think it gets distributed evenly or they think it like i don't know what they think but I think they expect it to be like, oh, we're a brand, then our brand is this. So all of our ads are probably skewed. They look at the account level maybe, and they think all of our ads generally skew to this, but it super relates to the each individual ad. If you make major different ads, you'll have ads that'll resonate in different placements if you're using yeah. those automatic placements. It's placements and devices. Like people don't even oh, focus oh, on oh. that either. Like it's everything. It's, yeah, it's yeah. really every variable, right? That's, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. yes. And so I obsess over placements a lot, just as an example, because it's devices and more importantly, it's ages and it's even geographic locations. Like people don't look at that at all. And I don't recommend it. I don't recommend you spending a lot of time in the DMA or region breakdowns in Facebook. But if you make an ad, with a Southern drawl talking person in it, perhaps it will perform better in Southern states. It will get more attention in those places. Perhaps it won't, maybe it won't. I don't know. Maybe you use reach certain regional language. You focus on certain regional problems, cold. You show someone in cold weather jackets, it might work better in place, but we're not looking at those individual things. We're just letting Facebook automatically optimize. And then for some reason we expect the results to be flat in like the same. Meanwhile, there's more people in densely populated areas. I don't have to explain cities versus rural. In different regions, there's different competitiveness of ads. Yeah. There's different availability. So like Facebook is taking all of those things into account and trying to get us the cheapest possible actions across placements, devices, ages, locations, any other number of variables that we can't even track. And, but we just don't, think about those or talk about those much. We just look at the overall. And that's crazy to me is that people just are like, oh yeah, overall it's this. And they don't really consider how one ad can be performing better in one way than, and another ad can be performing better in another. 
Oh, that I mean, is crazy. It's so funny you bring this up. I've been thinking about this a lot. I made a tweet about this today. It was essentially like the difference. People don't understand the difference between growth and performance. And essentially, yeah, I, I, saw that. I find when you talk to people about performance, they're not really thinking in hypotheses. They're not thinking in, hey, we're going to run these experiments. Oh, we're going to go yeah. and figure out what the data is actually saying. They're just like, okay, yeah. blended, it works. So we're going to go do more mm -hmm. of that. It's like, oh, dude, there's so much more nuance than that. It, by the way, yeah. it's really fucking hard work. So let me not say that this is a simple solution. However, yeah. the people that do that are the ones that everyone follows. There's a reason why you all follow them. There's a reason why they get the big business. And it is because they are doing these really micro things to understand how to leverage them at a macro scale. Yeah. And so right. that the big one is you do a lot yeah. of little work to be able to hit one home run the repeatability is based on all the little things that they're doing in between to be able to make these big swings and find yeah. those winners yeah so yeah i think it's absolutely the case so i want to transition to but i want to say talk about the growth versus performance thing oh, for a second. i saw that tweet and i was like oh i gotta talk to him about that because yeah. like, i consider myself both i but and i and hearing you just now talk about it made me think about like why actually it really made me think about why I can relate to some marketers and less with others because I am a performance marketer, but above that, I'm a growth marketer, meaning yeah. that, yeah, I will want to learn the performance marketing tricks and things that can squeeze out performance and can get every little last drop out of that. But more importantly, I'm a growth marketer, meaning that if I can, if I realize that some of those tricks aren't worth the time, energy, and scale to grow the business. I think that's how, me, the, how I would differentiate between the two is I'm going to, like there are growth marketers who would rather put all their time and energy into these small little things. And I would rather be like, you know what? Those variables aren't what actually matters to the bigger growth. And I'd rather focus on the bigger problems and solving, finding the bigger solutions rather than like individually finding. I don't know if that's really the difference or if I'm even saying that I'm, that's something good about myself. I don't know. Maybe someone's like, yeah, Barry doesn't care and not sweat the small things enough. I think I do. So I think I'll, about, I'll go. yes, sorry. I think about ad thumbnails. If you're obsessing over ad thumbnails, yeah, that's probably too much. But if you're not thinking about ad thumbnails, that's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like that to me, I think there's some performance marketers who might like test every single possible thumbnail for something yeah. and that's too much. But having a system by which you do make decisions about thumbnails or you do have a good like that is scalable that is repeatable and ergo that is growth but you don't want to be doing too little of stuff like that or not understanding it and you don't want to be obsessing over every single little yeah. detail because you, you just can't it's not scalable so that's my perspective so i think it's great you use one word that is i say all the time to people when i'm talking about this which is repeatability and so yeah. it's about repeatability and it's essentially yeah. all we're trying to do is raise the floor of what our performance as a company, not just as a performance yeah. channel, but as a right. company, because essentially a performance channel is a funnel that should go into a loop that makes people repeat, yeah. repeat business. So essentially if I'm a growth market, I say, okay, I got someone in, they're not first person mm -hmm. profitable, but I know by third, second purchase, they will be profitable. So yeah. how can I make the first purchase and the second purchase quicker? Let's mm -hmm. run experiments to get there. That's yeah. growth marketing because then I can reinvest that money very quickly into acquiring another customer because now I've compressed the time to make it like everything like 
we're at dollar zero with a customer. So I know that I can grow the business meaningfully from there. Repeatability is all of it, whether it's in how to create creative, whether it's in how to run the experiments in the life cycle, whether mm -hmm. it's how to do it on a performance channel. I just think performance is the beginning of the growth phase. It's not, yeah. I think people think it's everything and it's make a business run. You need to actually have your retention humming because if yeah. everyone leaks out, you're going to die. You're just going to bleed yeah. out death of a thousand cuts. There's a saying I'd love to always repeat that I didn't coin, which is retention is the power plant of your business. And so it just right. keep everything going, but then you can keep pumping in more stuff. And that's when you get your performance strategy really hammering. So yeah, I think you're dead on, man. Nice. I think I appreciate that. And like the easy, like I've always taught, I think I've learned this at my old job at Unified, but I've always taught this to any, anyone or explain this to anyone I manage is you should be thinking about whenever you're making a decision, is this scalable? Is this repeatable? Can't meaning, can this be done by other people? Can, if you're doing this, can someone else do this also? Can you train them how to do this? Can 20 people do this? Can this entire org do this? And then also, is it repeatable? If you have to do this every single time, are you going to be miserable? So those are the two things I like to filter through. Is this scalable? Is this repeatable? If the answer to both of those questions is no, then you probably shouldn't be doing it ever. If the answer is to one of those is no, then you should probably find a better solution and maybe do it that one time and find a better solution or maybe still don't do it. So that's the key is what are the things that I can say yes to those questions about? Yeah, that is, I don't want to go down that road because it's <laughs> such an interesting one, which I always talk about, which is like value creation is about, am I happy with this solution? And then like value extraction, which leads to repeatability is, can I repeat this and scale this process? And that's what leads mm -hmm. to retention. And so like yeah. first purchase is, okay, this is dope. This is creating value for me. Second, third, fourth is, can I do this again and again and feel good about it? So like I talk about Viore a lot because it feels like I buy a lot of stuff from there recently, them and Buck Mason have been buying yeah. an insane amount of nice. like shirts and stuff. And it's because it's like, okay, I work at home. I need something that is easy for me to wear, looks good, but has a, has a form and function simultaneously, mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep mm -hmm. buying. So like I'll wear viewers or I feel like I can go run around with my kids outside, but then I can hop on a call right afterwards and I don't feel like a bum. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an, essentially I always think about it in B2B terms because that, that's what we do. But when you're thinking about it with D2C is can you essentially make people feel good about that first purchase and then make them feel great about going again. And that's the game. If you can do that, yeah. you've won the game. And we know the brands that are doing a great job of that right now. We're, we're either friends with some of them or they're talking mm -hmm. about doing the build and yeah. public stuff. Yeah. And yeah, people need to focus more on that than a well, lot of it also, it also depends on if you're trying to make a profitable business or you're just trying to make a business that sells like that's, I don't, I don't know if we want to get into that, but that is a huge thing that is pervasive in this industry, yeah. in the whole industry in the world really, but is also like really difficult for comparison's sake. It's so hard for you to be one brand who's making, selling coffee next to another brand who's selling coffee. And one of them is extremely well-financed, backed, and has the goal of going public or yeah. something crazy. And they're willing to take massive losses now with the end goal of either a payoff later or being eventually something else down the road versus you if you're trying to be profitable. And these two businesses, 
for the smaller one that does the less has the smaller goals, they still look at that other one as like their direct competitor and they think they can compete. And it's not fair. It's not apples to apples. It's totally different. Even if it's the identical, same identical product, it's never apples to apples. They have different goals. That's why I don't like, like people sharing like certain benchmarks. I'm like, it doesn't matter if your CPA or conversion rate or whatever is this, theirs is going to be different because they have a different offer or they have a different like long-term goal than you. You you can't one-to-one any of that. The offer is such an interesting one. I talk to people a lot about this, where it's one of the highest leverage things you can do is like test your pricing to understand essentially, can I increase my margin without angering a customer? But simultaneously, what you just said is so important because by the way, a lot of these venture back businesses are having their, they're having their come to Jesus moment oh, right now. Yeah, so, the, yeah, this is, yeah. yeah this I wish I had recorded, yeah, I talked to people about this two years ago. Yeah, ser- seriously. It's so it's really interesting to understand like unit, like people's unit economics. And so there's a huge, yeah. it's like a big thing now where everyone's talking about having your unit economics aligned from day one to understand like, yeah. how quickly do I get to profit? What does that mean? Do I have the kind of business yeah. that can support this, like sustain this long-term? Because what yes. you said, the venture-backed companies would just shit money on their ads. They're like, okay, well, over time, and I don't really need to make money off this person or be profitable because we're going to have an exit and we just need the customers there to right. be able to show on our balance sheet. So when we go to the markets, yeah. they're like, oh, they have this customer. They spent $1,500. What do I spend 3000 to get them? So yeah. I'm at negative ROAS. And yeah, I think I wish there was a better way to solve for it. Because like you mm-hmm. said, the vanity metrics, like it, it's too myopic. It's not right? always vanity. It's not always yeah. vanity. Yeah. There's sometimes value to it, but there is a lot of vanity. There's, I get, I pretty much guarantee that any like investor or person who's trying to appeal to investors is like talking about and thinking about like how many Instagram followers or TikTok followers they, their brand has. Meanwhile, they're probably like buying the followers anyway. Like, like just to fulfill that need. There's a lot of brands that do that. And I can't tell you that's good or bad. I think it's fundamentally not useful for actual sales, but I think if you're trying to sell your business, having a larger Instagram audience will make people think that you have a bigger fan base. Like, but the bigger point would be like, I just, it's not just about being profitable. It's about if you can lose money, but you know that by growing your audience actually helps make bring more people in right there is also a world in which you can be not profitable and not have a growth plan but your product is so pervasive or so loved and so shared that you can actually like at scale find that eventually where it is profitable eventually where your product is so well known and everywhere that everyone needs to have it or everyone wants it. Like I was watching like John Oliver talk about Subway, Subway sandwiches the other day. And he talks about how they lost a lot of money early on just to get Subway everywhere. And then eventually, eventually it goes on to do shitty, but eventually it was actually really great at one point because they were everywhere. So they were so well known that people would always be comfortable going to get Subway anywhere. So losing money on that route can maybe work if you get to the point where you actually can make money from it. But I'm trying to think of what is a viral product where like you you lose money on people buying it, but then enough people wear it or use it and talk about it that like their, your, any of your customers become so vocal about it. Where do you think the industry is going next? We've gotten into a little bit, but like, 
do you have kind of a macro view around where D2C and maybe even just if we want to dive into more like perform, could we talk about performance creative is that's going to be mm -hmm. one of the things that almost becomes like a cottage industry that people say everyone on Twitter is now a UGC creator. I think performance creative like strategist is going to be the next thing. Where do you see the industry going D2C or in performance and growth? I think it, a lot of it depends on where people spend their time and how people, actual real human people spend their time. And I think it depends on either what reporting or tracking technology the platforms can improve or do to make up for what's been lost. And it also depends on what else the government might change or other policy makers or Apple or whoever might make about tracking. So those are the big variables, the big I don't knows that I have. I think I'm worried that people are spending less time on Facebook platforms. I'm also in the past, Facebook could just acquire a new platform to get more reach to optimize across more placements. But I don't know if, I don't think regulatorily, I don't know if that's a word. I don't think they can do that anymore. I don't think they can acquire any more platforms really. And I think we're a long way away from the metaverse ads in the metaverse being a big thing. So in the meantime, I think, I think we're a bit stuck with things like TikTok. I will also be, I really am interested in the future of, I don't know how to say it, like either product placement or the future of brand driven or sponsored content that is subtle, but I don't know if that's how far off, I don't know how realistic that is, but there was a, like, there was like Pepsi made like a game show. I forget what it was called, but Pepsi had a game show that was hosted by Jason Big, what's his name? Jason Biggs. Like that's weird. What was it called? Cherry's Wild. I just Googled it. I don't think that's a good example. I think it's a, an example of the concept being executed poorly, but I think Apple owns it so makes tons of content now and their products are heavily featured in those which yeah. you know, if you think about that's pretty smart yeah. um so i wouldn't be surprised if there were more opportunities for brands to incorporate products into more shows and make content where that is relatable to their stuff this is a ridiculous statement though but talking about making long form full content that really relates to the problems of certain products and brands like that's yeah. wild that's a dumb yeah. perhaps a dumb take but oh it's, it's definitely yeah. a hot take i think yeah. frankly think about it though i think the one thing that's big here first is all of these connected tv providers now have ad platforms mm -hmm. first thing yeah. this is definitely going to be an option second yeah. If Netflix is having issues on their earnings calls, they have to find right. new ways to make revenue because they essentially have yeah. squeezed most of the juice out of the lemon to, in yeah. terms of subscriber growth, they'll, they will grow yeah. they'll, they'll figure it out. Their content is shit right now compared to what it was in the past and everyone right. has caught up, but it has to be part of it. It's the same thing mm -hmm. where you can buy into podcasts where you just sponsor the whole podcast or they'll do a whole podcast talking to the founder and it's supposed to yeah. be organic, but it's essentially like you're buying the placement to focus on your product. You just try to find yeah. a way to leave it in organic fashion. So I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's too far off. I'm, I will be interested to see how quickly the bigger platforms respond to it. So I Maybe. think, 
the next one is this is i always say it's rapid fire but it's not rapid fire because i'm asking <laughs> pretty, pretty deep questions but where do you get your best ideas where do i get my best ideas where do i get my best ideas ah man that's a, it's a hard question just like in terms of like ads any, anything oh, man then it's an easy answer then i have an easy answer actually sorry i don't know why i took yourself to think of this i look at from any brand i work with i like to look at what the customers are saying and i also like to look at what the haters are saying i want to know why does someone hate this brand or this product or not or even not a hater i want to know why someone won't try this product what is stopping someone from buying this why is someone buying this other product instead of the one that I'm selling? Or why is someone against trying stretchy jeans? What is that? Are you afraid? And a lot of the times I love it's like when it's a masculinity thing, I love breaking down traditional masculinity about things. I, I helped launch and get a hard seltzer company acquired by making a hard seltzer that was basically for men, or at least was masculine. And we'd get so many comments, people saying, oh, it would be like really homophobic, offensive stuff. And I really took that as my fuel to make those men feel insecure. I wanted to like make guys who were clearly touting their like insecurities about their masculinity. I wanted to make them feel insecure about their insecurity. Look, I want to, so I would run ads that would say things like the hard seltzer or sorry, real men don't care what you think about what they drink or something like that. Meaning like, who cares? Don't it just drink, drink whatever tastes good and what you like. And if that's a hard seltzer, cool. Like you don't need to be drinking a Coors to be a man. That's not a thing anymore. And now I, I, so that's the insecurity I find so interesting is I get that from the haters. I get that from the people that are vocalizing, verbalizing why they don't want to try my product. That lights a fire in me and for any product that I've worked with. That's what I base my copy off of. That's what I base my creative ideas off of is how do I convince someone who has either never heard of this product or never even heard of this problem before? How do I make them hear about this problem solve and solve this problem for them and get around any of their negative comments about it? And that's what I get excited about. So that's where my ideas come from. So interesting. Like it's almost, it's that prove me, I want to prove you wrong kind of thing where yes, I'm the worst devil's advocate or the best devil's advocate, whatever it is. I love just challenging people to do better or like a lot of, if you follow me on Twitter, I disagree with people and I'm annoying about it. And it's usually the people I disagree with the most are the people I like the most and I respect the most, but I like to be a little spicy. I like to challenge people's opinions. Yeah. You never disagree with me. Why? I think, yeah, that's a good point. I'll, I'll try and disagree with you. Yeah, sorry. You we'll just say I'm an idiot when I'm like, yeah, I like kittens. You're like, stupid. That was a yeah, terrible thing. Yeah, I'm a dog guy. So, what? I'm also trying to be more supportive. I'm trying to be more positive on Twitter. So, that's you're doing great. Your... Maybe that's what it is. You're just patting me on the back. Chase, just keep keep coming up with these <laughs> mediocre takes. It's good. So, yeah. what, buzz, <laughs> what buzzword are you hating right now the most? Oh, wow. What buzzword am I hating? And there's so many like on people's like LinkedIn profiles, like about it. We, the one we said earlier has to be it. Like it's a creative performance, creative or performance yeah. creator, or, you know, UGC creator, any, anything around that I'm struggling with because anyone can say it. Yeah. You can have made zero ads and you can still say that and put that on your profile. And like that, I have a problem with that. It's just overused.
Yeah. Okay. What skill has served you best in life? That is a great question. Skill. Or actually uh, something, even if it's in the yeah, yeah. part of your personality. I think it is, you know, I kind of bubble it up into just the concept of continuous improvement. I think maybe it's that, I think it's just like I'm never satisfied, not never satisfied. I'm like, I also do take the time to be appreciative and enjoy and like things, but I always, I think there's, everything can be improved or done better. So I think it's that not to say I'm like a grump who never is happy because it's definitely not the case. But I think that like everything can be questioned and should be questioned and can perhaps be improved. So that, I guess, yeah, critical thinking, That's great. Uh, maybe problem solving. I don't know. If any, when people listen to this, I think what they'll feel is like how much you care about it. And I think this is, this is such a fascinating through line that I've had through all of these conversations. Care is the answer. Care. That's the right answer. <laughs> is, yeah, that's, I just TLDR'd you. There you um, go. I do care. Yeah. Is too much. The through line is yeah. a little almost burgeoning on obsession. It's passion. It's passion. It's care. Passion. That's yeah. what I should have said. Yeah. That's what I should have said. Cause it it's really is. It really, it's interesting because I was watching the man in the arena, just the first episode about Tom Brady. And if you've watched the, the Michael Jordan, a last dance talk, you can just feel even yeah. 25 years later, how much the dude still cares. What is that? The meme? I took that personally. You can tell it, right. it still takes it personally. It still to this day. And I, I think you can't make people care. It just is in them or it isn't in them. Because you can layer yeah. on all the skills in the world. You can learn anything you want to learn. Like yeah. all, everyone is really, I, everyone I interact with is really smart. I know that they have the cognitive function to teach themselves how to do anything. But you can't really teach someone to care. They either do or they don't. So yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's a great skill. I'm glad that that's the one that we that we came up with. What's the best? What's the best advice you've ever received? One of my favorite things from my old boss. There's so many things I learned from one of my old bosses or like my boss's boss, Josh Backer. At, he was at Unified. But so much I learned from that guy and continue to learn from him. One of the favorite, my favorite things, I don't know if this is that helpful and I'm sure there's other better examples. There's just one I like to think about in terms of like, is um, I'd always go to him and be like, hey, what should we do? Here's the situation, what should we do? And he'd always say back to me like, you tell me. And I always would then say, I think we should do this. And he said, yeah, do that. And I was like, Oh, so I always love, I try to, if someone comes to me for advice, I'd, I love to just throw it back at them and be like, what do you think we should do? What do you want? I don't know if that's maybe the best advice I've ever gotten, but I always, it's always really stuck with me and helped me be a better leader manager. That's the first thing that comes to mind. I'm sure there's better lessons that I've learned from like my dad about just having fun. Yeah. Just have fun with whatever you're doing. That's really important to me. And like, I think I would hope that anyone that's worked with me or works with me would be like, oh yeah, he's, you're definitely, he's definitely fun. And I uh, want to make people not hate what they're doing. It's hard both about, yeah, exactly. Like work is hard and it, it doesn't have to be awful. And I really believe that these, you, you have more control. Your mind has more control over your feelings and emotions and outcomes than you, a lot of people like to admit. You can, I'm not saying don't feel sad or don't feel angry. I feel those things immensely. I love to feel, I'm comfortable crying, but I think it's really important to understand that in your own mind lies a lot of the controls for how, what you do after that. You can experience something, have a terrible, something happen terrible to you and you can 
keep focusing on that every day, every minute for the rest of your life, or you don't and you focus on something else. You, some people just don't really realize that they have that power over themselves. And again, I'm not saying don't feel sad, don't feel anger, don't feel these things. Those things are important, but it's then what you go and do after. I actually love to feel frustration. I show it sometimes because I, it's, I think it's my own mechanism of trying to learn how to feel that pain so I don't make that mistake again. I think that's the like psychological or chemical thing that I do to keep learning and growing and not making the same mistakes over and over again. Whereas some people like don't want to beat themselves up. They just want to be celebrated and just have friends around them that tell them that they're great all the time. That's not me. I wish I had more friends that could tell me I'm a moron more often. Oh, yeah. Anyone who sees us, tell me I'm a moron on Twitter, please. Last one. And I'm curious, I'd be very fascinated to get your take on this. Mm -hmm. You could go back to your first days as running right columns when you were working in <laughs> HR or a brand owner, someone starting out like when you were doing your Etsy shop for Everton gear, what would mm -hmm. you tell that person today with kind of all the essentially battle, battle scars and all of the things you've learned? How would you suggest they start out? Really look at the things that websites do get right. And like, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on websites, not just like ads. But focus on the things that they get and know that a lot of that actually takes time and energy and effort. You can't just, it's not really, if you build it, they will come. It's, you got to build it and you got to build it right for it to be good. Really put yourself in the shoes of whoever is going to be paying attention or buying and try and experience what they would experience. Understand how the ads look and feel in the different places where they'll see them. Try and make sure you test the website on whatever type device they're using. You make sure you're testing your website on mobile. I don't know if that's the right answer or what you're looking for, but I think that's the right answer. I, of course, I feel so un, not, I feel so just not confident about these answers I'm saying here, oh, um, sure. but it's make marketing human that, again. <laughs> yeah, I should make that happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm gonna write that, write that. I'm writing that one down. That'll be the collab with that's, you. Yeah, He's uh, constantly telling me about robots. Yeah. The guy is talking about robots. Yeah. So it's funny because says, uh, like total side note, we'll finish. People are talking about what's an AI. What's a dude. People wrote the code. You're inputting everything. It's just making you a multiple. The data is yeah. human that the system is ingesting. So it's essentially just a factory for you yeah. and it makes more yeah. and variety. So you have, in, yeah. you have input all this human stuff into it. Humans have created everything. It just moves things faster in a more mm -hmm. mechanized way. So you can be yeah. multiple. And that's how I have right-sized it in my head because it's okay, I want marketing to be human. It has to be human. Yeah. Everything we input into yeah. it is human. The way we use it afterwards is very human. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing yeah. as if we're using the algorithms on Facebook or TikTok. Yeah. They're created by humans to interact with humans. Yeah. They just allow us to reach more humans faster than we could on our own. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I love that. I really love that. Barry. What if my hot take, wait, no, I got to keep going. Wait, what if my hot take earlier was like, yeah, I think similar to how there's AI for ads, there'll be AI programs where I can just have a program buy all my products for me. And then it's well, just it's gonna happen. advertising to AIs. I know. Oh, it's, it's yeah. going to happen. It's going to yeah. like, someone will come out with, an AI personal shopper where it's going to just yeah. be like min maxes of what you can buy and what you can't. If you see a sale, buy it for me, et cetera. 
which I think we just figured yeah. out our next business, Barry. So we're, yeah, we're, we're, right we're there. You just stop recording yeah. so no one can steal this. That is proprietary, yeah. hot yeah. mo industries information. That's right. Yeah. Wait, before we do one thing, tweet I sent earlier that was scheduled actually launched literally probably as we were saying it in real time actually was scheduled for today. The one I said before, media buying is exhausting. That tweet literally oh. went out while we were talking. Oh, so uh, essentially you you were transposing all of the emotions from that tweet into this call. Yeah, yeah a little bit. No, but that's so funny because yeah. that was what you said earlier and I said yeah. it was scheduled and it was literally scheduled for yeah. now. Yeah. Very also, anyone weird. listening, Barry's been doing a great job of, of running his running his Twitter. He's at Bing Hot, so B-I-N-G-H-O-T on Twitter. Just me. so much learning that you can do off of there. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me and looking forward to doing another one of these. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ad Creative from Pencil. We hope you enjoyed our chat and learned a thing or two that can help you grow your business and think more creatively. If you have someone you think we should interview, hit me up on Twitter. Also a small favor. If you could please share and review this, we want to make sure as many people see this podcast and are able to learn from our guests as possible. Until next time, add some creativity into your life. Thanks.